This is the All In Gospel Podcast, where we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every week. If you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or join us at allingospel.com. Enjoy your Bible study. Blessings. Um, oh, let's. So we're going to be in Exodus 22 tonight. Does that sound right? 22? Um, beginning of 2 Peter, he goes through this list, like this progression of the faith things that come in order. And it really, when we were doing that, reading through that, it hit me that's really similar to what I've been trying to communicate the last two, three weeks. The law comes at a certain point in your faith. And Christians often make the mistake of putting the law in front of non-believers. You shouldn't do this. You should do this. And suddenly the Christian faith becomes this list of do's and don'ts. And there is a list of do's and don'ts. So you can misuse the law and misquote it and do that sort of thing. But it's really clear throughout the Bible that God didn't give the Hebrews the law right up front. He gave it to them after he redeemed them, after they had faith, after they'd been following him for a while. Because we pursue the law because we love God. We don't pursue the law because we have to or because it somehow makes us prepared to love God. And I think everybody in this room gets that. But I think it's something I just want to keep getting to because it just is still on my heart every time I go in and study this. I love this stuff. And we're going to get into capital punishment tonight and all sorts of thievery and all sorts of things like that. Devious deeds, done dirt cheap. And I, and I, but I still think of this and I think the reason I love this law is because I love a God that thinks this is the thing to teach people. Like this is what's important to know is that what God sees is righteousness. So we're in Exodus 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, He shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in, he is struck and he is struck so he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. Okay, so again, there's going to be 600 of these, right? Throughout the Old Testament, there are 613 laws, and we'll talk more about that in a bit. So we already have had the Ten Commandments, and every one of these things, chapter 21, chapter 22, and chapter 23, We're just expanding on the Ten Commandments. So obviously we're dealing with if you steal, you need to have some personal responsibility for it. So God doesn't like crime, and the consequences for crime are worse than if you just worked for an ox for yourself. Um, This also implies the right to private property, a right to self-defense. If somebody's breaking into your home, you can take them out. But, verse 3, if this, and by the way, I like this. I think when I first got married, I thought, I have to protect my home. What if someone broke into my house tonight? What would I do to them? Maybe this, I don't know why I didn't think of this before I got married, but when I got married, I was like, I think if someone broke into my house at night, I would have to kill them. I'd have to take, because I want to protect my family and my home and all that sort of thing. And maybe you think about this, or you just lock your doors. That's another way to do this. If the sun has risen on him, the thief, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. So if somebody breaks into your house during the daytime, You're not supposed to kill them. You're responsible for that. And he should make full restitution if he has nothing. Then he shall be sold for his theft. So this becomes one of the ways that you can be sold into a servitude. In other words, if you're stealing things, you're probably poor. Therefore, we're going to give you a job and something to do. At nighttime, and in this kind of world, if someone breaks in at night and they're trying to steal from you, that is a life-threatening situation. In the daytime, you should be able to call for help. Because people are awake, they're moving up around the camp, there's people around, so you should be able to yell for help. Um, but when they come at the nighttime, you may, that help may not arrive. 
Um, and remember, there's no jails. So the consequence of going to work into servitude is that no, they don't really have jail cells to put thieves in. Verse 4, if a thief is certainly found alive in his hand, if a thief is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall restore double. So if you catch me with your stuff and I can give you your stuff back, I also have to restore double what you had. In some cases, the amount of restitution is written in the law. In some cases, it's left for the judge to decide. But in these last three that we've seen, like the restitution amounts are set in the law. Like there's set things. Verse 5, if a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds in another another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. And if a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that stacked grain or standing grain or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. We're seeing in the law that God thinks personal responsibility is a big deal. If you do something and it hurts people, you should make restitution for that, right? So you're responsible for the effects of your actions, not just the fact that you started a little campfire, but that it actually lit up somebody else's field. You're responsible for that. So carelessness, negligence are not innocence, that you're still responsible for things because of the ripple effect of them. Crime doesn't pay. Respect other people. If you do damage, own up to it. So if you bump somebody's car, leave a note on their windshield and be ready to pay the cost of that. Even though the temptation is to just drive away as quietly as you can. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep, remember there's no banks. So I might have someone who has more facilities or a bigger tent than me to hold my things while I go off and work with my sheep, right? So you may have a backpack full of stuff you leave with someone. So I leave my stuff with you and it is stolen out of the man's house. If the thief is found, the thief shall be paid double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house, the person who is holding these goods for the person, shall be brought to the judges to see whether or not he had his, put his hand in his neighbor's goods. So the judges have to try to figure out if this person's stealing or not. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or any kind of lost thing which another claims to be at his, then the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whoever the judge condemns shall pay double to his neighbor." So those, there's no pre-described, it basically is a catch-all for all thievery, right? So no matter what, if when in doubt, bring it to the judges, let them figure it out. Um, it also implies that if I lose something and it's found by somebody else, it's not the law of finders keepers. That's not a thing in God's law. It's a thing with little kids, mm-hmm. but not with God's law. So judges have to mandate or they're expected to seek out truth which implies there is a truth and it is seekable. And we have situations throughout the Bible where judges are told directly by God who the guilty party is. Remember, there's the guy that steals stuff out of the whole nation of Israel and they keep bringing families and then clans and then tribes and in the reverse order of that. And they eventually come down to one person. What's that person's name, Steph? Achan, because he was Achan for some bacon. Was that... So, and then another situation, for instance, when Peter had the people that were kind of stealing their own gift from the church, and basically they die on the spot. Like, God judges those unknown situations in this kind of a theocracy. Um, the, judge, the word judges here is actually, uh, 
um, Elohim or small l lords. So lords of the land, the people ruling, the governors of the land. Verse 10, if a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep, and it dies, is hurt, or driven away, and no one sees it, then the oath of the Lord shall be between them both. In other words, they both swear upon the Bible that this was an innocent situation or an accident, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall, the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. This precludes any sort of revenge thing. So I borrow you my shop tools and you accidentally break them, you should restore them. But let's say they break of their own, like they're just wore out tools and they just kind of break down. You swear, you just say, I swear by the Lord, I didn't break your tool. It was just wore out, right? I know tool examples, you're all getting glassed over, but some of you are like, yeah, tools. Um, and then I have to accept that. And I have to not then try to demand things from you but that prevents me from giving you faulty stuff, having it break on your watch, and then getting you to pay for it. Because that's not just either, right? In more difficult situations, then, you just have to take people's word for it. Verse 12. But if, in fact, it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. If it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence and not make good what was torn. This is all kind of common sense law. So if I borrow you something and you don't secure it and someone steals it, you're actually responsible to pay me back. Like you need to make that right. However, if your dog eats it, you just come and bring the remains. This is what my dog did to your stuff. Sorry, accident. Um, <laughs> and at that point, I need to just say, you know, accidents happen. Don't worry about it. 14, if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. Um, and I like surely make it good, not just make it good. Frankly, I like the phrase make it good. <laughs> I think that's an interest. If you think about it for just a second, that's a really interesting phrase. No matter what happens between us that might cause conflict, to make something good, to make it good, I think is a great phrase. But to surely make it good in the Hebrew is shalom, shalom. And Hebrew often does that. If they want to add emphasis to something, they just say it twice. And in English, then we say, surely make it good. But they say, if this kind of thing happens, then shalom, shalom, right? Make it good, make it good. Um, to pay for something, to make peace, to bring reward. Shalom is the same root word as shalom. To make good our relationship once again, to where we're both satisfied. I borrowed a power drill to a friend of mine um, from church. It busted on his watch. Didn't even call me or tell me, but when he came to bring the tool back, he got a Milwaukee power, like he bought me the top end drill and brought it back. And he said, I'm really sorry I broke your tool. That's why I'm thinking of tools, by the way. And I was so blessed, like total shalom between me and him. I'd borrow him any tool, anytime, anywhere, any place, because I know that he's not trying to use my stuff and wear it out. He's actually making it good. And so I thought it was wonderful. So I have this beautiful power drill now because of it. And, and I'd be happy to borrow him anything, like break my stuff. <laughs> make it good, make it good. Do better than just make it good because the relationship's more important than the junk. And I think that as a rule of life, even though we're talking about oxen and donkeys, we can still apply that rule really easily. 15, if its owner was with it, he shall not make it good. If it was hired, it came for its hire. You hire me to do a job at your house. 
I come over to your house. I do a project for you. I break my own tool working on your house. You're not responsible for that because you're already paying me. And when you pay me for a job, you're paying me for my tools too. That makes sense, right? Okay. Now we get into premarital sex. Um, it already said you shouldn't commit adultery. So we're expanding on that commandment and we're getting into that. Uh, remember the concept of marriage in the Bible is super simple so far. And some people weren't here when we did Genesis. So I just want to read this because I think this is the most basic, simple idea of marriage ever. Alyssa, you're smiling. You know where I'm going to go with this? I think so. Guess. Just like literally back to Adam and Eve. Oh, well, no. yeah, there's that. But they're kind of married <laughs> when they're created. They look like, wait, like, hello, I'm a human and you're my wife. There's so, literally no other humans. There's literally no other humans. <laughs> so I'm thinking of the story when the servant goes out and goes into the household of Laban and the Rebecca's water in the things. And he's like, she would make a good wife for Isaac. And she goes in, asks permission, and you know Laban says, do you want to go with this strange man and go marry some strange person in a strange family you've never met? And Rebecca's like, yeah, I'll go. <laughs> so, Which speaks very lowly of Laban and his family, but Rebecca's like, yeah, this sounds like a great adventure. Verse 5. They're riding back on their donkeys. It's been a couple weeks. They're stinky from travel. There's no such thing as deodorant, right? And they've been hucking right across the wilderness on camels, and she asked the servant, who is that man in the field coming to meet us? So he's out working in the field too. It's the Middle East. It's hot. It's nasty. And he says, he's my master, the one you're going to marry. The servant answered. And so she took her veil and covered herself. And then the servant told Isaac all that he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebecca. Hand in hand with, they went into the tent, they had some sex, they're married. And that's the game plan. I mean, really early ancient Hebrews, marriage is not this big ornate festival. You don't call your friends and family. It's private. It's you and that other person in the tent exchanging rings and making vows in that tent together. And that's what consummates the marriage, I'm sure. Um, so he became his wife. He loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mom's death. Sex is marriage in the biblical perspective. They're interchangeable words. The idea of one flesh is vivid phrasing for this. You get it in 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 16. There's nothing casual about sex. And we live in a culture where sex is casual. And even if our conscience says it's not, we can convince ourselves really quick. And if there's people in the room where that's been a struggle in your life, there's forgiveness, of course. But that forgiveness starts with understanding that the ideal God has for your life is purity and sex is marriage. That's what consummates or make them, makes the marriage happen. At best, sex is with one person for the rest of your life. At even better, you and that one person have lots of fun having sex for the rest of your life. That's the dream. And it's this gift that God gives that should create a relationship that's as intimate as our relationship with Jesus Christ, right? And that we can talk to that person, we can expose ourselves to that person spiritually, emotionally, and for the husband and wife, even physically. And there's just no embarrassment there. Like you know each other and, and you accept each other and you're stuck with each other forever, right? <laughs> if a man entices a virgin, a virgin is a, a Hebrew word meaning an unmarried girl, right? And for them, an unmarried girl and a virgin were the same thing. They didn't live in American culture where that wasn't necessarily the same thing. 
Um, so young girls were always, if they were unmarried, it was presumed they were a virgin. Despite any revisionist history you have, that was the idea in this culture. So um, the word is bedula, which sounds like a flower, which I thought was kind of nice. Um, and you can be Petula even if you look in verse 17. Uh, that can be restored in some ways. But if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If you have sex, you should finish that deal and make it a marriage situation. If you have a responsibility then for your sexual practices, this I lost control thing, the emotion of the moment, I can't control myself, everything else Hollywood wants to mix into a loving relationship, those things are lies. You can control yourself. You do have the ability to not be lost in the moment. That's chaos. You can bring structure to your life and have a will as a human being. You have a free will. You can exercise it and you can say yes and no and that sort of thing. So if you want to lie with somebody, great. Sounds like you're getting called into marriage. If you want to lie with somebody when you're 16, maybe listen to your parents. Of course, as now as a parent, I'm like all for parent-arranged marriages, but that's not biblical either. <laughs> but I think, like, I got best interest in mind of my kids, but we don't actually practice that in my family, but I still think it's a great idea. If a father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall still pay the money according to the bride price of virgins, which I think is hilarious. Guy and a girl have sex. The guy comes in and says, I want to marry your daughter. We've already had sex. Like, we went in the tent just like Isaac did. <laughs> It's a done deal. And as a dad, the dad can say, heck no, you don't get to marry my daughter. What kind of jerk are you? You didn't come talk to me. You don't know my family. You didn't live with us for a while. Like, you don't get to just go jumping in a tent with my daughter. Get out of here. And you're going to pay the bride price. So the bride price is one of virgins, and in which implies then uh, that that young lady is still eligible to marry somebody else. So it's not like there's some magic thing with sex, like this idea of virginhood. In the Bible, that means unmarried. It doesn't mean unsexed. And in America, when we say virgin, we think of someone who's never had sex. But in the Bible, you can have these kinds of situations and God can still purify and make somebody sacred. So that when you're married, an unmarried person, you're ready for a, a groom. And I think that's a lot more humane because there was a lot of rape in the ancient world and those things did happen and it was horrible and destructive and a construct that you're somehow then flawed for marriage how much more destructive is that right but this idea badula is or bet, i'm not saying it right it's hebrew with my minnesota accent it's batula um but uh you are simply batula until you're you agree to that marriage and then you're then you're taken right um it doesn't give a reason for why the dad would reject the young man but i can think of plenty Right? Anyways, I don't want to go off on that too much. But anyways, the guy's responsible for his behavior and so is the girl. And um, it was a way to discourage disorderly passions. Right? If you know you might have to pay a bride price, which is a giant sum. Remember David to get Saul's daughter had to pay a thousand Philistine foreskins? Bride prices are not cheap. They're major life goal adventure kinds of things. So they're huge prices. So it puts a value on sex that's incredible, right? And so if you want to have sex, get ready to pay that huge bride price. Um, and then we get to verse 18. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Uh, sorceress in our language is, implies female, but the word kosher is not, is, uh, not 
female. It's gender neutral. So it could be a sorcerer or a sorceress. And in this context, anyone, Kashif means anyone who whispers a spell. And I don't know what that means, but it implies that spells might be real. And that blows my mind, and I think it's just weird, and it gets all my fantasy fiction reading mm -hmm. going crazy. We've already seen in the Bible that Pharaoh had sorcerers, or Kreshaf, and verse 18 would apply to them too. So they are people that would cast spells or thought they could cast spells, one or the two. Um, so the law doesn't de deny that it's impossible to cast spells. Um, it, it actually implies that this is kind of a reality. And I love that I live in a country where it's not that big of a reality. However, if you look up the number of Wiccans in the United States, we are closing in on a million Wiccans in the United States. It is a growing trend in this country, people who think they can cast spells, and the Bible doesn't deny the possibility. So there is a spiritual world. There are spiritual beings that would be happy to humor humans and make them think they're powerful. Um, so those things are out there. They're weird. They're freaky, and they make me feel creeped out just thinking about it. Um, Exodus 7.11 uh, we could see before that pagan worship often included demonic communication, so some sort of connection where those sorcerers would get stuff. And in the ancient world, it also included drug use. It usually had something to do with drug use. So you take some drugs, you see some things, you hear some things, and then you pretend like you've heard from the gods. Even worse, the place God's going to take these people, the pagan worship of the Canaanites included sacrificing babies and children. So... Take, don't let a sorceress live sounds super harsh, but they're perverting the right ways of humanity should exist. This is a massive crime against humanity in God's eyes. Because when you do these kinds of things, they're sick and they're twisted and they're gross. So we're going to see some occasions where God actually deals with the Canaanites and he wants the Israelites to wipe them out. So their history isn't part of world history anymore. And it's partially because a lot of what the archaeologists are saying is that they were as a people into some really sick stuff, right? And sicker than the Egyptians, right? He let the Egyptians continue to exist. But the Canaanites, he didn't want them to exist. Um, and when I say pervert the right ways of the Lord, I'm getting that from Acts 13, verse 10, by the way. 19, whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. The word surely is there. It is muth muth. This is worse than a sorcerer practice. Casting spells, they shouldn't be allowed to live. Sleeping with animals, mooth, mooth. We should kill them, kill them. <laughs> There's no question about killing these people. There's something broken there where they think that's okay. Oddly enough, there are still upon... Oh, let me get to there when I got my... I got the numbers in there. In comprehensive civic law, the Bible... And I think this is encouraging. The Bible leaves no room for weird behavior. And it doesn't leave it up to doubt as to what to do with weird behavior in your society. So I think it's cool that the Bible is R-rated. It deals with all of life, not just the kiddie Sunday school parts of life. And the reality is there are people that think that that's there. I think the Bible is direct, forward, unequivocating, and clear, and I'm inspired by that. So I think it's neat. Because if you want to have some commentary on verse 19, you have to appreciate things like, well, I'm glad the Lord didn't pretend certain things don't happen. And the Lord deals with it directly, mixed right in with these other laws. Um, animal sex is largely gone in the Judeo-Christian world. We live in a country where this is extremely weird, and we still think it's weird, and we still call it weird. But let me suggest to you that in the tales of Baal, Canaanite literature, 
sex with animals was totally common. It was even prevalent. It was even practice for sex with humans. And it's part of why venereal diseases spread rampantly through Canaanite cultures is because this is what they did in their temples, those poor sheep, you know, like it was not a good place to be an animal. It is still legal to have sex with animals in nine of the United States. Did you know that? What? Like, look this stuff up and you're like, what? So it is still legal. And the trend is uh, in 2006, it was just outlawed in Washington state. However, there are small groups of weird people that are trying to remove those laws from the books. Why? Because if you're going to do weird sexual stuff, it doesn't satisfy you. You keep having to get weirder to satisfy yourself. Normal sexual practice gets better and better and better through marriage. Trust me on that. Weird sexual practice gets less and less satisfying the more you do it. And it's like you're going in two different directions. One is towards God and what he intended for those things. And the other is just sickness and twistedness. And I know that's an uncomfortable topic, but I think it's interesting that it's in the Bible. And there it is. Um, God's standard for sex is rejected by a lot of cultures that walk away from the Lord. And what we're seeing in America right now is a trend away from God's intention for that. It starts with, you should have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. But it goes into these other things. Well, now you should have sex with, you know, (laughs) other kinds of people that would not normally have sex with. And then you should have sex with animals. There's even a group in Canada that's growing in strength and numbers to lower the legal age for sexual with with kids. And so you start seeing these things and you're like, just... Why do you need to be so weird with your stuff? Um, so anyways, uh, I'll keep moving. Verse 20. He who sacrifices to any God except the Lord only shall be utterly destroyed. Karam is a different word um, than muth. So you put to death someone who has sex with animals, but you utterly destroy anyone who sacrifices to other gods. And again, these sacrifices often included human sacrifice and other things like that. Uh, In the Bible, we see where this gets carried out. Remember, Elijah um, shows up the prophets of Baal, and then he executes this law in 1 Kings 18.40. He kills all of them, and he destroys them. So um, we take care of strangers. We don't take care of people that serve other gods. And so there's a clear line here in the Bible as to where that happens. Verse 21, you shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress them. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So it's easy to be kind to your friends and family. It's not so easy to be kind to strangers that aren't like you. But do it. Be nice. You were a stranger in a strange land once too. So this, I think, is a law that makes, in the ancient world, tourism happen. People can go into Israel and not worry about getting killed or robbed because they have an entire culture where they're okay. Thus, Israel quickly rises to be a trade center every time it's serving the Lord. Under Solomon, under Hezekiah, under Josiah, they see prosperity and wealth because when you don't mistreat strangers, they're willing to come to your country and spend their money. Um, And trade routes can go through your country. Here God protects the stranger from mistreatment. It limits violence of one person from another, and you can start to do that. Verse 22, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way, they, and they cry out to me, and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows, and your children 
shall be fatherless. Dang. Take care of vulnerable people in your society. Don't pretend there aren't vulnerable people in your society and don't pretend you don't have a responsibility to care for them as a society. Remember, this is civic law. The abuse of other people gets God's wrath against you and I thought it would be nice to read from the Quran to show a little contrast. If you want to look at ancient laws, right? So in God's law, if you're mean to weak people, he gets ticked at you. But listen to this. Quran 489. But take not friends from their ranks until they flee in the way of Allah from what is forbidden. But if they turn renegade, seize them and slay them wherever you find them. And in any case, take no friends or helpers from their ranks. Quran 8:12. Remember when your Lord inspired the angels, I will cast terror into the hearts of those who disbelieve. Therefore, strike off their heads and strike off every fingertip of them. There are over a hundred verses in the Quran that give clear instruction on how to handle people that don't love Allah. Compare that to the Bible, right? If we're mean to strangers, God gets mad at us. But in the Quran, if you're mean to strangers, God's happy with you. In fact, if you don't treat people that way, and I won't just pick on Muslims here. Let me read from the Bhagavad Gita, right? Actually, I don't need to read from it. It's a systematic process. The entire thing explains why Aruna's dharmic duty is to fight instead of to not fight. That's the Bhagavad Gita. That's the whole story. It's this character being told why he should fight. And he fights so that he can come back in the next life as a better person. But the whole premise of the book is fight and kill people in the name of your Lord. So for God's people, he gets upset with us. For other religions around the world, it's often the case that their God gets mad at them if they don't mistreat strangers and they're mean to them. And I love that God. I celebrate in a God of love versus a God of hate. And I think that's super cool. Verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people, it's like, yeah, I wish I had money to lend people. <laughs> if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to them. You shall not charge them interest. If somebody's poor, you don't charge interest to poor people. You don't make your money off student college students. Don't do that. Just let it just give them the money for college. Don't charge them interest. It'll put them in prison for the rest of their life. My people means everybody. Remember God's God of all people? So if you lend money to people in your family, you shouldn't do it for profit. People at your church, you shouldn't do it for profit. Poor people, you shouldn't do it for profit. Today we think of this just off within the church. Um, but here lies the roots of Jewish interests in banking. If you know world history at all, you know every country the Jews have gone into, they've been successful moneylenders to the point where it's a stereotype, right? Why are they great moneylenders? Because they shouldn't charge interest to their own folks. So, and this sounds really selfish, let me go to another country because I can totally charge interest in Italy. And I, but I can't charge interest to poor, but I, if I go other places, I can charge interest, but I don't want to necessarily charge interest of other Jews or of poor people. I want to stay away from that. So it made it so one way to be a, an ursary is, is a viable kind of career path where you can make a lot of money. Um, commercial loans are not part of Jewish law. Another way if I have money and I want to loan it to people is I don't loan it to individuals, I loan it to businesses. Everywhere Jewish people have gone and invested money, business and commercial interests have thrived. And that is, this is part of why, is because they have laws against doing it in a way that hurts people. 
But if I can help a business get started, I can still make money and do that, and I'm still within the law. Make sense? All right, and, and I think that's kind of neat. Um, there's over 16 passages on loaning money and how to lend money that we'll, get, we'll come across in the Old Testament. Not one of them has anything to do with business or commercial laws. So if you want to start a business, I can charge you interest and lots of it. And there's nothing that prevents me from doing that. The word interest actually means biting usury. So it has to do with a kind of interest that really hurts, like mafia interest, right? I don't want to charge you so much interest that you can't pay it back because it bites. Interestingly, credit cards charge biting interest by that definition. In fact, credit cards charge you more interest than most mafia loaners would. So they don't come after you with big sticks if you don't pay it off. But credit cards are evil according to this law. They're horrible. Give poor people as many, as this ability to loan money and then charge them 10, 20, 30% interest. That's biting usury. So I bet if you look into it, credit cards would be something that most rabbi would say are unethical and not okay. And they're not, God would see that as a bad thing. I don't think God thinks people who use credit cards are bad because we're the poor people, right? But God thinks the people doing that to you and, and charging that biting usury, that's kind of horrible. And anybody that's been on the biting end of that, yeah, that, that really hurts. And that's not fun. Verse 26, if you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is the, his only covering and it is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And that will be when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. A pledge is like collateral on a loan. And if I borrow your tools, I might give you my cloak in collateral because that cloak was really valuable. It had pockets in it. It was my bedroll. It was my brain poncho. That one piece of clothing was kind of an all-purpose piece of clothing in this world. Um, so if that keeps the sun off you and everything else and, and it's what you have, Basically, at night, God says, have some mercy. Give them their coat back so they have something they can sleep in. So it acts as a sleeping bag, too. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Uh, when I was a kid, I don't know if they still say the Pledge of Allegiance in schools every single day. Some schools they do, some schools they don't. So I think it's a wonderful thing. And when I was a principal, we did the Pledge of Allegiance every day in my high school. Because you want to honor the country you're in at most, as most as you can. It's kind of fashionable right now to disrespect the United States of America and its history. But there is an element here where that's also rejecting this command in verse 28. You shall not revile God nor curse the rule of your people. So no matter who the president of the United States is, there would be a little picture on the wall. Sometimes you still see this in TV shows. And then there would be a little flag above it, often like a 10-cent flag from Duber's or something like that. But the idea was, this is our president, this is our flag, and we want to honor that. We want to honor that person regardless of political affiliation. And that's gotten a lot more heated in the last 10, 15 years. Like, if it's not my president, then I'm not going to say a pledge. And that's not the point that this kind of verse has. The idea is, you should kind of respect your country, and God ordains governments, Romans 13.1. Whoever's in that seat as president, God wants that person in that seat as president. And that's kind of a theological thing we can talk about afterwards if you want to, but you're not supposed to curse that person, which makes virtually half of all talk radio outside the law <laughs> at any given time. So if... Uh, um, anyways... Verse 29, you shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. 
Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep, and it shall be with your mother seven days, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. There's such a thing as tithe. And this is kind of the first instance where we see God's going to start to have a system with which resources would go into the church. And that resource would kind of support what's going on. Back in Exodus 13, verse 12, God warned them that this would be part of the practice, so he gave them advance notice. Verse 12 said, um, 13, verse 12 said, Thou shalt set apart for the Lord all that openeth the matrix and every firstling that comes of a beast with the, which thou hast, and the males shall be the Lord. So he already warned them about this. A family, remember in Exodus 34, verse 19, can redeem that firstborn son. So if we want to keep grant around, we can go down to the temple and say, we're going to pay a grant price to keep, because we really need grandpa. He's our only son. He's our firstborn, but he's our only one. We got many, many sheep. And if we lose that son, it's really going to hurt our family. So I can pay a price and I can redeem grant from that process. Verse 31, you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. This keeps Hebrews away from a, a great number of nasty diseases and intestinal nastiness, right? You don't eat dead stuff. Roadkill is not snack time. <laughs> um, if you make a rule, it's because somebody was doing it. And you just, like, they wouldn't make the rule if there weren't idiots that would start eating dead things. Um, and then paying the price, I'm sure. You shall be holy men to me is a really great phrase. It really, this is a rationale for all the laws that we have so far. I want you as a nation to be holy. And to be holy, you don't eat roadkill. Like, there's just these kinds of things where we're not going to do these things. And if the consequence is bad enough, the idea isn't to have many, many punishments. The idea is that nobody does this stuff. These are just off-limits things in our society. So we want order over disorder, kindness over selfishness, cleanliness over filthiness. And these are just kind of these governing rules. Exodus 23, verse 1, You shall not circulate false reports. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. These are all different levels of witnessing. If we're going to get to the truth of the matter, remember those thieving things where a judge would bring people in? If we're going to get to the truth of the matter, you got to tell the truth. And bearing false witness undermines the whole society. If you think you can lie, then we'll never discover the truth of the matter. And it's a massive problem if you don't think God's watching you and can unpack when there's liars and not liars, then people feel comfortable lying all the time. It's a plague on a society. If God's not watching me, I can say whatever I want to whoever I want to get my way. I can bear false witness. And I think this is happening all the time. So the other idea is you don't want to give people special treatment or worse in verse six, right? Um, you don't want to pervert judgment in favor of the rich and against the poor. And you don't want to do it the other way either. You don't give people, poor people, the benefit of the doubt just because they're poor. So you don't want to... You, under the law, you don't want to do those things. And one way to think about this is like the Roman image for the law was Lady Justice, right? And she's got a sword in one hand and scales in the other, and she's blindfolded. The blindfold is really based on Judeo-Christian law that says you don't pervert justice one way or the other. Justice is blind. 
doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, how many McDonald's you own, or how poor you are, if you broke the law, you're gonna pay the consequence of the law, right? We're losing that in America. If I pay enough money for a good enough legal team, I can get away with stuff. And that's almost something that we assume, and it's really sad, because in your generation, we almost assume that that's true. In my generation, we'd say, that's not true. If you go to the courts, it doesn't matter how good your lawyers are. If you broke the law, we're going to figure it out. It's just not true anymore. And you start thinking, what's going on when suddenly those things start to break down? But where does it break down? It breaks down when people can say whatever they want for their own benefit, to put themselves above others, right? When they think they're telling the truth. So Lady Justice then becomes somebody who's peeking from underneath her thing and treating people differently. Um, you're supposed to testify the truth to how, no matter who's with you. You shouldn't follow a crowd to do evil. Um, so don't march with the mob. <laughs> That's generally not going to be good for things. And you don't just go with something because everybody says it's true. I had a frustration with a coworker once when they said, well, there are multiple people are saying it. And I'm like, since when does multiple people mean anything? Multiple people can be wrong. And I think I was in a mood. So I actually said, multiple people crucified Jesus too. And multiple people stoned Stephen. And multiple people did. So when does multiple people have anything to do with anything? So may, you need to find out the truth of the matter and find out what's going on. So I'm a prickly person sometimes. Verse four, if you meet your oxes, your enemy's ox, <laughs> Hello, ox. Just the standoff moment, like, you're my enemy's ox. That poor ox is like, huh? <laughs> or his donkey going astray. Bring it back to him again. If you see a donkey or the one who hates you lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. Man, you're, that'd be such a great opportunity to really get my enemy. Don't do that. Just be nice. And again, that comes back to this concept of just be a nice person. Maybe they won't be your enemy anymore if you take care of their stray animal. You bring it back to them and you say, hello, enemy. I have brought your ox home to you and I did nothing to hurt it. It's still in good shape. Don't become overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. And it's buried right in the law. And I think that's just, man, this is unheard of because humans don't come up with this stuff. Humans would be like, I'm going to take that ox and have some burger and feed everybody. You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous. For I will not justify the wicked, and you shall take no bribe. For a bribe binds the discerning and perverts the words of justice. In fact, bribery is illegal in the United States, in part because it totally corrupts the judge. No judge is fair and impartial if they're taking a bribe from one of the two sides, right? So we, if you try to bribe a cop, that's actually an offense all by itself, and it should be. Like, you don't do that. Verse 9, also, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you are strangers in the lands of Egypt. This is like a refrain from Exodus 22, verse 21, right? We've heard this before. And I like that the law comes back to these kinds of things. Treat your neighbor like yourself. Be nice. Verse 10, six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. And the poor of your people may eat what they leave. The beasts of the field may eat. And in like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. In six days you shall do your work. And on the seventh you shall rest that your ox and your donkey may rest. And the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. Okay, we're not landowners here, most of us. 
Um, but we're tenders. We take care of the land. Who owns the land? God does. And if our job is to take care of God's land, we should give it a Sabbath too. So for humans, Sabbath is a weekly event, but for the land, it's an annual event, right? So every seven years, it gets a break. This is totally unique to Israel law. And it's also outstanding crop rotation strategy. It embeds in Jewish law through this really simple, plain law that letting the a land go fallow for a year, which means whatever wants to grow on it can just grow. You just leave it alone. But it's great for soil nutrition and it's great for keeping a sustainable agricultural society. And what the Jewish people did, and there's more on this in Leviticus, is instead of not having any crops in year seven, what they would do is take all of their land and divide it by seven. So in this year, we would grow these six fields and leave that one fallow, and then they would just start doing crop rotation, which I think is the Jewish people twisting this law just a little bit, because um, that wasn't the intent, because you're not exactly giving donkeys rest when you do that. But that seventh field then could be something that the poor people could go eat from. Because if you do it with your olive groves too, and you do it with your wines, those wine, there's grapes and olives will still get produced in those trees. But that means that at any given time, a poor person can go out into any person's land and there's going to be a seventh of it then they, that they can go eat from. And they probably mark that out and put little flags out saying, this is my fallow field and you can help yourself. Um, that also implies that poor people had to do some work to get their food. They didn't just get a handout. So if you want food, it's right there. Go do some picking. So um, the Jews will break this law. <laughs> and they break it for a long, long time because farmers like to make money off their fields. But God actually redeems those years back and he sends them to Babylon for 70 years, which when he explains it says, you didn't do what I told you to do to lead the land fallow. So now I'm going to collect those years. And every year that you did not do this land Sabbath with, that's going to add up to the total amount of time you spend in Babylon and my land will get its rest. So for each, so it adds up. We'll get to that in Leviticus too. Verse 17, and in all that I have said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods or let it be heard from your mouth. So we're returning back to the first commandment. That means we're kind of getting to the end of a sequence here. No other gods, you should, if you don't even mention them with your mouth, you're pretty much ghosting them, right? You don't even talk about these other gods. Then I feel guilty because I brought up Thor and Saturn and Odin last week and like, oops, I shouldn't even be saying their names. Um, don't let it be heard from your mouth and don't reference those gods and just eliminate them and erase them like they don't even exist. Made me think, what are the gods in the United States that I could not mention? And it didn't take me long. There are things in the United States that people put their life into and they get really excited about it. And they're often meaningless, idle things, just like the false gods were of these, they're meaningless, empty, dead gods. But people love to worship things that are meaningless and dead. But then you don't mention them or you pretend like you've never heard of them. And this is my true joy at church on Sunday mornings. Are you going to go see the Vikings game? The Vikings still play games? And you just kind of have fun with people like you've never heard of NFL football ever. And people just are like, they look at you like, don't you worship the Vikings like I worship the Vikings? And you're like, are those the ones that do the thing over the net? And they just think you are from another planet. Amen to that. I'm from another planet. And I don't care who these people are. They don't mean anything. They're empty and they're dead. And if you want to entertain them, you can. But I think it's great. 
let's not even let's ghost them. Let's not even pretend they exist. Now sports are fine, and I'm not saying that those some people like sports and whatnot. But in America, you have to admit our sporting teams are rising to the level of worship for some people. We have rituals and ceremonies around that worship. We're getting traditions around that worship, right? And we put our life into it. It's where we put our hope and our energy and our community. And we start building community around those things as opposed to building it around Christ. Because we don't want to talk about Christ. So what can you talk about? You can talk about fake cartoon logos that go with the sporting event, right? Like they matter in some way because humans can ascribe worth to anything. It's what we do. It's what we're born to do. Three feasts. Three times, and I'm going to read through these. We're going to get to the feasts in Leviticus, and I and they're awesome, and the symbolism is phenomenal. But for now, the Bible doesn't kind of, it does mentions them. So all we're going to do is just read through this. Three times you shall keep the feast for me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, and you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Aviv. For in, in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. And in the, and the feast of the harvest, the first fruits of your labors which, labors, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you've gathered the fruit of your labors from the field. So Jesus, I'm just, I'll say this really quick. That unleavened bread is pretty much March and April, which is Passover, crucifixion, and that Jesus has fulfilled that one. The harvest or the first fruits, same thing. And in the Bible, those are mentioned interchangeably. That's about 50 days later in the month of June or where we would put June. It's also called Pentecost, right? And it's when the Holy Spirit first got the harvest, that initial harvest of the church, right? That one's kind of been fulfilled when Pentecost hit, right? So the first fruits and the harvest. Then there's this ingathering or tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, that's around September, October, another period of time passes, and it's the end of the harvest. So when my when I first start getting fruits out of my garden, that's the first feast. Then there's kind of the Thanksgiving feast, the one that happens at the end of the harvest, when everything's kind of said and done. And many people believe that feast hasn't really been fulfilled yet, and that that would be the end of days when Christ returns to gather up all his harvest and his people. So three times in the year, you shall, all your males shall appear before the Lord, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with any leavened bread, which symbolizes sin, for you shall, for nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. <laughs> okay, so the, the, the leavened bread is a symbol of sin, and you get it out of your house before you come before the Lord at Passover. The fat, I love that it mentions the fat because that's like the... Remember, all these animals are free-range. They're not fatty like our fat. I, our fat, when we get fat meat, has globules of nasty fat on it. These are free-range eaten sheep and donkey and oxen. They don't have the kind of fat we have. The fat of the beast, when they talk about it, that's the bacon. They're talking about the bacon, the good stuff, the stuff that's succulent and great, not globules of nasty fat, but little stringies of tasty fat, right? So the best part of it, you shouldn't leave it. You should you should soak that up. Uh, don't let it remain till morning. It shouldn't be saved. If you're going to engage with the Lord, do it wholeheartedly, all in, all the time. And then you get this goat boiling part, which I'd never thought of. If it wasn't in the law, it wouldn't have occurred to me to boil a goat in its mother's milk. That just sounds mean. 
Um, and it is mean. Isn't um, a Jewish culture, culture thing? Uh, it's absolutely a Jewish culture thing. And the reason it's getting brought up is because it was a huge pagan practice. This is what the, pay, the Canaanites would do. So that reference is a reference to sacrifice that has to do with spellcasting. Because the Canaanites would do this. We know this from their literature and their reading. They believed if they did that, it would bring more fertility. So they would take that boiled goat, take its blood after it's boiled in its mother's milk. That was part of the spell incantation. They'd take that blood and sprinkle it on their field, sprinkle it on their people, sprinkle it on anything that needed fertility. And that was kind of this fertility ceremony that they had. So it's a direct reference to the neighboring culture that they're going to go into. But here's the thing. The Jewish people have taken this law into their kosherness. And they've decided they don't ever want to even have the danger of this. So they don't eat cheeseburgers. So if you met a G Jewish person, don't offer them cheeseburgers for dinner. Because they didn't want to avoid the chance that the cheese could be from the mom and the meat could be from the kid and they're getting cooked together. Which is not the point of this. And that's the interesting thing when you see kind of Jewish law. And the Jews do this all the time. So this seemed like a good opportunity, this particularly weird law. The Torah has 613 very simple and clear rules. Don't do what the Canaanites are doing with the spell casting sacrifices. We're just going to have a barbecue and we're going to eat it and we're going to praise the Lord. Right? The fat shouldn't wait till morning. Eat it all. Have a feast together. And But no spell casting. This isn't some sort of weird ceremony. It's really simple and it's really clear. But the the rabbinic Jewish people have taken these first five books of the Bible, these super clear laws that we're just got reading through, and they took those and they made a midrash, which is a rabbinic verbal commentary on top of these laws. So 613, then there's the midrash, which becomes a biblical commentary, and then there's commentary on that, which is called the Gemara. That's exposition on the midrash. If you take the first five books of the Bible, 613 simple laws, the Gomorrah, which was developed into the Mid Mishnah, and the Torah, the Midrash, the Gomorrah, and the Mishnah are all what they call the Talmud. The Talmud is a library of books. In fact, it's 523 books in 22 volumes. That's what rabbis have to memorize from these 613 laws. And one of those volumes mentions you shouldn't eat cheeseburgers. <laughs> I mean, it gets down to these particular little ridiculous things where their religion is laws and they are trapped by these laws. They're imprisoned by it and they're not happy people. If you've met kind of an Orthodox Jew and, and it's really, it's not, it's something that when they have to deal with God, they're always dealing with what they should do and what they shouldn't do. And they're forgetting that the whole point of this was a covenant. Owen, I'm sorry. You are a grumpy person. That's in case my friend Owen ever listens to this. But it's one of these things where you just think, wow, what a horrible religion. At some point when all you're doing is worrying about the right and the wrong of these rules, when do you ever just have to have a feast? Whenever you ever just get to have a feast and just love the Lord? And Owen would say he does that too. What they lost is the clear and crisp commands of God, and they lost the spirit of these things. That's what Jesus' issues were with the Pharisees. That's when he ticked them off is when he challenged them on exactly these kinds of things. Stop taking something like don't do a Canaanite ritual with your sacrifices and turning it into dietary law for the people of your land. How harsh is that? Behold, verse 20, I send an angel before you to keep you on the way and bring you into the place which I have prepared. Huh. 
this angel is going to keep us and it's going to prepare a place for us, right? Sounds like John 14 verses 1 through 3, doesn't it? Beware of him, capital H, and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Beware is to watch, to guard against. Angels often have the name of God literally in them. Mike L, L means God, right? So Michael has the name of God in him. Gabriel has the name of God right in him. So a lot of these angels have the name of God in them. Uh, Yahweh or Yahshua or Yeshua, Jesus has the name of God in him too. This particular angel, take note, has the role of judgment. He will not pardon your transgressions. This angel, this nameless angel, is going to be the judge and God's name is in him. The only one that can pardon sins is Jesus. And we see that because in Revelation 19, Jesus is the one that does the judging. And Jesus's robes are tainted in the judgment, the blood of judgment, that sword that Lady Justice holds. Lady Justice doesn't hold it. Jesus holds it, right? And in Isaiah 63, we see that wine press imagery being played out even more. The only one who judges in the Bible, other than this angel, is Jesus himself. Only at this point, Jesus isn't getting named, right? So um, verse 22, if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I'll be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. What an amazing promise. If you indeed obey. So chapter 20 and 21, so far, all these kinds of things, the Ten Commandments, if you even try to do these things, obedience isn't success. Anybody who's been a boss knows that. Being a good employee, it, you're going to make mistakes. But if you're trying to obey or trying to be a good employee, that's what your boss is looking for, right? So if you indeed obey these things, if you serve God, if you basically are fair to the people around you and try to be nice, and that there, there's an if at the beginning of verse 22, that's an if, that's a promise that's just an amazing thing. So if you need someone to fight for you, try to serve God. If you have enemies and adversaries, I hope you don't have a lot of them, try to serve God. And God will tend to do that work for you where you don't have to be battling with people. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites, the Parasites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Cellulites, the large people from up north. <laughs> and I will cut them off, and you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. Note here that God does the cutting down. We don't do that. God does it, right? Our job is that we don't bow, see that? We don't serve, and we don't do their works, and we break the idols, which is why I like mocking American idols, right? It's fun. If you haven't done it, do it. It really ticks people off, and it's joyful on your end. Our job is to take the reverence away from these gods. What do you mean? There's another Marvel movie that came out? I thought they went out of business. Right? If we can deflate those gods just a little bit, it's joyful for us and God fights our battles for us, right? So as our country goes down this path of like empty worship of nonsense and goes down this path of just increasingly weird stuff on the sin front, man, just live righteous lives, be kind, don't rip people off, and have fun tearing down their idols. Like, it's a joy. Frankly, even if you have big, large totem pole-style idols like Asherah poles, man, light them up. Let's have a bonfire and burn that stuff. 
and we can cook some marshmallows and have a night of it, right? Um, but we don't, obviously, don't burn down the Metrodome. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> not the Metrodome, the U.S. Bank Stadium. But look at that thing. It's a temple. It's a modern-day temple. There's no other way to look at that place. Look at the resources and the money that our community put into a place like that. It's huge. Zach's just laughing at me. I was like, there's a bird target too. <laughs> Who has to go up there and clean that thing? Our job's to not bow down, not serve, and don't do that nasty stuff, right? That's our job. This is a law that's kind of livable. If you don't go to the Talmud version of the law, this is a law that's totally something we can do. Like, I don't have to feel that guilty anymore. And if I even try to do this, God's going to fight on my side. Okay, God, I'll try. I'll do that to the best of my ability, right? And he's going to fight my battles for me. All right, this is a great deal. So you shall serve the Lord your God. We're back to the beginning, right? It's the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Serve the Lord your God. He'll bless your bread and your water. I'll take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer a miscarriage or be barren in your land. Mm -hmm. And I will fulfill the number of your days. What an amazing blessing. Food, health, lots of babies. And in the, the Hebrew, the fulfilled, the number of your days is, I'll fulfill you all of your days would be a better translation of that. I'll be in you and fulfill you all of your days. I can say, and I have a few very, very good brothers and sisters in Christ, that our walk in Christ has been one where we've been fulfilled every day. And I haven't been sick free, and we've even, it's not like we haven't seen miscarriages and whatnot, but the fulfillment of the number of our days, yeah, I've had up days and down days, but ultimately the Lord fulfills us. If we serve him, he fulfills us. And it's an amazing thing that most believers that we talk with, and it's why I ask for your God stories, right, is that we can help with each other if somebody's having a down week, but you get to hear that so-and-so had a great, like God really acted in their life that week, then we can even, in the church, we can kind of help each other out like that. And that's part of why you do Bible studies. I will send, and then, so that's the good part for God people. Verse 27, he kind of says, here's how I'm going to handle other people. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion amongst all the people to whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you or run away from you, right? And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, the Hittite from before you. Notice the first promises don't have specifics, but the last one with the hornets actually says Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites, which is not the same list as above. So you're like, oh, that's interesting. So in Joshua 2.11, we see from Rahab that all the people in the city are already scared of the Jewish people before the fight even starts. So that promise gets kept. But in Joshua 24.12, it's a little lesser known part there's actually hornets involved in that piece so if you want to do a little extra bible study and look at joshua 24 you can see that that promise gets kept in a very particular specific way this implies both a natural and a supernatural work being done by god and then we'll wrap up with the last few verses and i want to do these kind of all as a group i will not drive them out before you in one year lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you little by little I will drive them out before you until you've increased and you inherit the land. God's going to give them exactly what they need, when they need it. That's how God works with us too, and I think it's super great. As we grow in our faith, the rest of the world and the rest of our life that wasn't sacred for God just kind of gives way until you look around at your life and you're doing more and more in the kingdom and less and less for yourself.
Um, it's got it's how God grows churches too. I think it doesn't happen in a two minute movie montage, right? And all of a sudden we just clean up our house and redo our hair and we're a new person, right? And I love those scenes in the movie. They make me happy. But that's not how life works. It happens little by little, verse 30. And in God's time, that happens. So where God guides, God provides. If God brings you into a new endeavor and a new adventure, he'll give you exactly what you need in that. And he won't give you any more than that, which means we don't get spoiled in the Lord, which I'm sad about. Sometimes I'd like, you know, like, Lord, please spoil me. I would love to have this kind of abundant thing, but it's never like we're spoiled. It's never like we totally lose that anxiety in life or we totally get rid of those things we're scared of and what might happen and how am I going to do at my job and, you know, all those kinds of things. How do I make it so my wife smiles at me every day? You know, those little things, it doesn't, it doesn't happen all at once, but it does happen over time. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. There's nothing you're going through that isn't common. We don't have a lot of counselors that say that anymore, do we? You're so special. This is so unique, right? There's nothing you're going through that other people don't go through too. Get over yourself. I like that. But God's faithful. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in God, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, you will also make you a way of escape so that you can bear it. It doesn't matter what you're in. God's got a path to get out. God's got a path through through more often than out, you know, but anyways. The Christian journey is a lifetime journey, and we advance in the kingdom one step at a time. Pastors' conference last year was funny. Almost all the pastors talked about this idea that churches don't just grow. Churches do this, and then they 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 do this, and they just do more of this kind of thing, right? Little by little. But then you look back after years, and some pastors are in the world for like 20 years, and they look back and they go, wow, this is what we are now. But it just keeps, we keep doing this retraction thing. And the image Paul gives for that is that the kingdom of God advances by blows. And it's this idea of like sailors sailing out of the dock against the tides. The tide's coming in and these sailors would have to try to oar themselves out of the harbor, even though the waves are coming at the harbor. And the way you get out is just brute strength, right? It's just this labor of moving these oars in the ancient world. And you'd move by blows. So that wave would crash against your boat and send your boat back a little bit. And then you'd try to row, row, row before the next wave would come in, right? And Paul uses that same image for the church. That's how our lives work. That's how we grow in the faith. We go forward and then ah, we go back. Then we go forward, we go back. But you look back over 10, 20 years and you're like, I'm different than I was. I was so encouraged when I've heard some of the people that have come like for the whole, since we started this a year ago, they're like, my life is different than it was. But I don't know how. I just know that, Growth happens slowly and it happens through failure and it happens through successes, but it happens by blows. And everything in the kingdom of God seems to work that way, even how God promises the Jews they're going to inherit the land. Hebrews, you're going to get the land, but you're going to get it little by little. You're not going to get more than you can handle. I'm going to wait for your population to increase so you don't get more land than you need at any given time. And they're going to inhabit and grow in this land. I will set your bounds, verse 31, from the Red Sea to Philistia. Huh. From So that's north to south to north. And from the desert to the river. And the river in the Bible always is referring to the Euphrates River, Iraq, right? I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. So to date, that boundary description has never happened. Israel's never filled that territory. 
but they've constantly been growing by blows and then they lose their land altogether and then they get their land back and then the Egyptians attack and then they take Sinai and then they give it back. It's been this, the nation of Israel, even the borders of it have done exactly that for all of human history. They've grown, they've shrunk, they've disappeared, they've reoccurred. You shall make no covenant with them or their gods, them being the Canaanites, the Philistines, all those nations. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it'll surely be a snare to you. Dwell is a cool word, yeshab, to inhabit, to sit, abide, to remain, to hang out, to linger. It's not like a permanent kind of they've set up shop. It's this, you know, sitting around thing where you haven't quite got rid of it. The idea with this, verse 29, it's super simple. Serve me and obey me, right? Or I'm sorry, verse 20, the 27, 28. Serve me and obey me. It's really simple. And then these covenants that you make with them, verse 32, they're going to be a snare to you. And that's exactly what's going to happen to Israel. They make deals with these people, even unaware. They let these people kind of dwell and dwell and linger. And boom, the next thing you know, you see Israel doing tons of idol worship, right? If God convicts you, I, I think this is, for me, it's convicting. If God convicts me of anything in my life, anything that I got to fix or change, I'm in danger. God doesn't warn us of things if they're not a danger, right? <clears throat> For me, this happened with my music collection. I get saved when I'm 16, but like a Bible retreat thing, I get saved. I come home and I got ACDC, Motley Crue, Twisted Sister, all these 80s heavy metal bands. I got my my closet full of black t-shirts that are still around somehow. So I still see these things all over the place. And I remember that music and I'm like, I used to really like it. I still think it has some redeemable musical quality and value so I just let it hang around in my life but it's a snare and it's a trap and there's a lot of anger in that music and there's a lot of like nastiness in that music and even though I like the form of the music I could just let it hang around well I was a smart kid I took it all in a plastic bag I brought it down to the dump yard because if you're going to get rid of it have fun doing it I burnt it in a huge bonfire I watched little tape cassettes melt in the heat like a pyro right and but I was responsible and nobody's field caught fire because of what I did. So I was responsible with my little fire, but I burnt it all. I had no compromise and no dealing with it. And then over the next few years, that music started to like show up in my tape collection again. Right. And then Apple, like, like, uh, or even before Apple is the illegal one, right? Napster. Mm -hmm. Oh, <laughs> Napster. I can get this. I can, you know, listen to my old favorite songs again. It started to creep back in and it becomes a snare. Anytime God warns you about something or convicts you about something, just get away from that sin. It's not worth dealing with or making a covenant with. Well, if I just do it in these conditions, then it's not sin. Or if I just do it here, then it's not a bad thing. Or if Steph's with me while I do it, well then, you know, I, I got a crowd of people, then it must make it okay. No, a crowd of people does not make it okay. Don't have any interactions with sin and with this world. And that's what God's trying to tell him. I've given you my law live under this law and don't make deals with these other people. But Israel will get snared. Joshua 9, they're going to make a covenant. God's hope will there. And all these awesome promises, they just go away. But there's still awesome promises. And a lot of these promises weren't given with the conditional statements like the hornets. A lot of these promises were eternal promises. He didn't put a time stamp on these things. 
if you follow my law, I will bless you. That's a permanent promise to us. If you try to live under these things, you'll be abundant. You'll actually have some better health. I'd love to see studies that looked at entire populations of people when it comes to health quality kinds of things. And my bet would be that people that live under these kinds of laws actually have healthier lives than people who don't. And you'd see some of those things. And some, some of you in those areas may actually know of studies like that. Because I think that would be something where if God's being true here, there's no conditional on these promises. So we're into the law now. We'll keep going with it. We're still at Sinai, and we'll keep digging into it next week. But let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for your word and for your law. We celebrate it. Lord, this stuff doesn't make me feel as guilty as it did a couple weeks ago because, dang it, this stuff has a promise with it. And, Lord, we just love what you have for us. Lord, we love to follow your law and do your work. Lord, when there are those that would do evil to us, <clears throat> Lord, help us to be kind in return, to just return those things with kindness, to return evil for with good. And, help, and Lord, when we are discouraged or when we are frustrated or when we are anxious and we're losing sleep, uh, Lord, help us to hand those things over to you with the promise that you will fight our battles, that you will give us nothing beyond what we can handle. Uh, that you'll grant us the territory in our life little by little as we're able to take it on. And as we grow and mature and expand in our faith, you will give us more and more territory in the kingdom. And you'll bless us with those things. Lord, we love you. I pray a blessing upon the, the workplaces and the families and the roommates of everyone in this room. Lord, may they see your blessing. May it not be something that we have to have faith around, Lord. We have to have faith the first time. But I just pray you bless each person in this room so wonderfully this week and this month and this year that they can look back on their life and see that by blows, they have grown in their faith and they are more mature and they don't have to just hope that that will happen. They've seen it happen in their own life and they can see that reality. Uh, Lord, we're so thankful we have the word of God, that we can read it, we can study it, we can meet with the lights on, and we don't have to do it in secret. And I just am so grateful, Lord. May your kingdom come in Iran and in China and these countries around the world, Lord, where what we're doing tonight is illegal and um, could get us in trouble. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in those countries. May we not forget them. May we not think that we are um, beyond that world and may we uh, make our faith resolved and not take for granted the teaching of your word and the learning of your word. Uh, may you bury it in our hearts like my grandma uh, so that even in our old age, we know your word and we know it well uh, because we love you and we want to serve you. And we don't do it out of a sense of works. We do it out of love. And Lord, we just love you and we lift you up. We praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.